Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 76, Manichaeism. Recorded Thursday, December 10th of 2015, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. And I'm mostly done being sick. Hooray! Which is a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah, quick peek behind the scenes. Um, because of Thanksgiving, our last episode was recorded a week later than usual, so there's only been a one-week break between episodes rather than two, and I'm, I've am i not had two weeks to heal, <laughs> is really what it yeah. comes down to. So I am still slightly sick. If I sound a little stuffy and nasally, I really do apologize, because I'm going to be talking a lot in this episode. Yes, this is going to be another um, episode of Grant Explains a Fascinating Thing that Peter is Barely Familiar With. So. Yeah, well, Grant's not super familiar with it either, but I'm going to do my best, I promise. All right, before we get into that, Let's talk fundraiser. Not for us, for the Bodana Group. Yes. You'll at when this episode drops, you'll have a limited amount of time to donate to our fundraiser for the Bodana Group. Yeah, when does that run until? It runs until December thirty first, or January first, I suppose. If you're not familiar with them, listen to episode twenty five, go look them up online, thebodhanagroup.org, which of course I'll link in the show notes. You need to go check these people out. Donate if you haven't. They are fantastic. They use role-playing games as a form of cognitive therapy for children who are perpetrators or victims of sexual abuse. Honestly, even if you are familiar with them and you um, you haven't listened to episode 25 in a while, might be worth it to go listen to that again. Jack yeah. Birkenstock is an awfully fascinating guy. It was really cool having him on. Yeah. We need to get him back when he finishes that book he's working on. Well, we need to have him back on at some point anyway. I don't know. We'll yeah, figure it out. Yeah, that's true. We don't need to wait for him to finish the book. Yeah. Now, we just need to wait for him to have a gap in his schedule. Yeah, there's that. Now, if you want to do something nice for us this holiday season, get on iTunes and review us. We love reviews. Reviews are awesome. They help us a ton. Seriously, yeah. getting us out kind of in front of people, giving people an idea of what we are and do, and hearing it from you to say, hey, I really liked this. This is what they do for me. That's great. Every bit helps. Trust me. And of course, if you have other places to review us, that's good. And if you want to share us out on social media, that helps more than anything else because that personal recommendation and word of mouth transmission of saving the game is the best thing we can hope for. Yeah, it really is. And the, the few times when we have had something that took off on social media, we saw an immediate spike right afterwards. So exactly, it, it definitely helps a lot. Yeah. And of course, some of those people do stick around. You know who you are. You're awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All we're right. Very glad to have you. So we're talking about Manichaeism or Manichaeism. We've got some scripture and then we've got a lot to go over. So yeah. And just real quick before we get into the scripture, folks, Grant and I discuss this a little bit instead of doing uh here's what this is and then let's apply it to gaming we're gonna try and pepper the gaming stuff into the middle of this we're kind of trying out a new format for this so if you like this let us know yep. um if you don't like it let us know episode comment social media all the usual ways of contacting us you know but we're we're gonna try something a little different this time around so yeah it just makes more sense with what we're doing here and if you haven't heard the previous parts of our historical heresy series go to stgcast.org and check those out yep all right i'm gonna start us off with uh psalm 119 here all right and then i'll let you do matthew sounds good this is psalm 119 verses 25 to 27 i am laid low in the dust Preserve my life according to your word. I gave an account of my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. Cause me to understand the way of your precepts, that I may meditate on your wonderful deeds. And this is Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we're talking about Manichaeism today. Yes, it's hard to pronounce. Yeah, Manichaeism. And... I'm going to say Manichaeism too many times because that's what it looks like in my head. And there's not an Ianism in there, but I'm going to say it. I apologize. So what we're talking about here is a major world religion from the 300s to the 700s, which has some of its roots in Christianity, in Judaism, 
and in some other religions kind of from that same part of the world, really originated in modern-day Iraq, and spread from France to China and sporadically appears in world history all the way up to the late 1300s. There are a few modern-day adherents kind of in the same category as other New Age, revival kind of faiths, but really the heyday of Manichaeism was in that 300 to 700 range. Now, we can't talk about Manichaeism without talking about Mani. Mani is the founder of Manichaeism. Spelled M-A-N-I, by the way. Yeah, M-A-N-I is the (laughs) English transliteration of it, let's say. Mani is a title. The real name of this guy is unknown. Possibly Shuraik, which is a common name at that time and seems to be what some of the translations of his real name kind of maybe hint at. It's all kind of, you know, okay, we heard it was this, and now it's in, you know, been translated into Greek, and now it's in Latin, and it's very hard to figure it out. But we think that might be what it was. Manny is kind of a difficult title to translate. It's an honorific title, meaning something like the illustrious, but also involving the word light in some way. He lived from 216 A.D., to 274 AD. We know those dates pretty well. We actually know the date of his death. And we know his parents' names. And we know that he was born in what's now Iraq, in the Sassanid Empire, which is basically the Persian Empire under the Sassanid dynasty. Manny's father was an Elsazite, which is a Jewish Christian sect and a subgroup of the Ebionites, who we talked about in the first episode of our Historical Heresies series. So we're we're connecting here, right? So we've got a, yep. a Judeo-Christian sect that's not Gnostic, but is very heavily monotheist. So Manny had visions at the ages of 12 and 24, supposedly, of a heavenly twin of his who called him to leave the Elsazites and go preach the true message of Christ. Now that's in quotes because that is specifically what he said. This is the true message of Christ. So he traveled, traveled a fair bit, studied Hinduism, and probably syncretic Greco-Buddhism, which was in Bactria around that time. It's an artifact of Greece's forays into India, starting with Alexander. Greece and India had a lot of connections at this time. And so you had this strange merging of uh, kind of philosophical Greek ideas and Buddhism ending in this very ascetic syncretic faith and practice in that in that region. So this was kind of Buddhism plus Plato? Uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, but also some Greek mythology. Okay. Yeah. Real quick for those who don't know what syncretism is, because I didn't until I looked it up. It's when you basically mix two religions together, correct? Uh, yeah, that's essentially what it is. You know, taking bits and pieces of both, or practicing both and finding places where they kind of merge, that sort of thing. Manny seems to have been influenced by other Gnostic traditions in the time, and their works, in particular the Book of Enoch, which I'm sure we'll talk about again at some point, or its predecessor texts. He wrote seven texts, six in Syriac Aramaic, which was his native tongue, the same language that the Talmud is written in, and the seventh was written in Middle Persian, which is sort of the official language of the Persian Sassanid Empire. And this last was kind of a summary of his works, presented to the king of Sassanid Persia by Manny himself. Now, here's a fun fact, and this is a great spot to jump into gaming material. According to tradition, Manny himself invented the script used in Manichaean works. Manichaeism has its own alphabet. Okay, so... so... Alphabet's really not quite the word. It's its own script. It's a a unique version of Syriac script. So it's more like its own typeface? No, no, because it's different. It's its own letters. Imagine if I wrote English words in Cyrillic or Korean. The sounds are there, but I'm using a different set of characters to represent those sounds, right? Okay. They had a special script that they used for all of their writings. And it's very close to the Syriac script that was commonly used there, but it had its own punctuation and some different characters for different things. What this grew out of, I'm not sure, but... Throughout the Persian Empire and the Uyghur Empire, this is what they used, regardless of the language that was being written down in that script. Okay, so yes, this is this is about as 
gameable as anything ever was. If yeah, exactly. If you oh hey, if here's minded... a religion with its own way of writing things. That's yeah, not or... a D and D thing at all. Yeah, here's here's like this sect thing that invented its own means of communication, maybe writing or maybe some other kind of strange magical glyphs or something like that that only they ever used that you have to learn if you're going to absorb anything that they ever produced. Yeah. And somebody who speaks Russian might look at something written in Cyrillic and say, this isn't Russian. I don't know what this is. This is weird. And it may take them a while to figure out, wait, this is Korean, but it's written in Cyrillic. That's what? Huh? Yeah. You know? Well, and the the other interesting thing here to a more... um modern set of eyes, I would say. If let, Let's say that you take the idea of using English and Cyrillic, because the characters look kind of similar, but the, you know, the, the sounds that go with the similar-looking characters can often be quite different. So you, sure. you've got all of this, this English that's written in Cyrillic characters, or even, let's say, vice versa. To somebody who speaks either one of those natively, that's going to look an awful lot like something that's been encrypted with a cipher of some kind. Exactly. It's a, it's a crude sort of cipher, and it's just a fun little characterization you can throw in and be like, wait, 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 how is this written? That's so weird. Why would they do that? What what caused it? And you start going down that rabbit hole. Suddenly it's interesting instead of you find a letter from the high priest. Well, and the thing that's cool about this particular kind of thing is in this case, the cipher key is anybody who speaks both languages fluently. Or mm -hmm. reads them well, at least. Right. Because at some point, you're going to be looking at this like, wait a second, that sounds... I see what you did there, and then all of a sudden, you've got it. You know, I mean, yeah. you can you can actually read through it and sound it out, and somebody else can transcribe it, and you're, you're all set. But Sure. It also means that you can, you know, once you kind of know it, you can just look at this. Because remember, this is its own unique script. It's not just like Cyrillic. It's Manichaean Cyrillic. Right. right. Or in this case, Manichaean Syriac script. Syriac script, by the way, it's got the same general form as modern Arabic. It's reading right to left. It has that um, very stylized appearance. Lots of curves and dots and stuff. Yeah. Uh, a little less curvy and decorative than Arabic, but that same general style. Okay. Once you know what to look for, you can look at a page and even without reading it, you say, oh, it's a Manichaean document. Even if it's in an actual cipher, you can look at this and say, no, 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 this is unique. This is from this particular sect. So lots of interesting things to start playing around with just in that. Yeah, and I mean, language is one of the fun things that's always kind of thought of as being tied to magic in a lot of fantasy settings. It is. So perhaps this, you know, once again, in a fantasy setting, this strange sect has their own specific type of magical effects that only they can produce because they have access to this weird magical language. And mm -hmm. No, I, I think these are all good. All right, so let's get back to some history here. Yeah. Uh, I told you that Manny presented this last document, which was not in Manichaean script, to uh, the king of Sassanid Persia. This king, who was named Shapur I, was not a Manichaean, but he did tolerate this new religion. Uh, and actually gave Manny a post in the Persian imperial court. And with imperial assistance, Manny began missionary expeditions, developing a tradition of apostles around him, and spreading the religion. Now, Shapur's successor, Hormzid I, only reigned for a year, and the succeeding king, Bahram I, began to persecute the Manichaeans. Manny was imprisoned and died within a month. Some traditions say he was put to death rather horribly, some say he just died in prison. There, are, It's a conflicting stories about it. Yeah, in any case, he was about 58 years old based on the, the birth and mm -hmm. death years that he's got. So in the ancient world, that could be executed or that could be, you know, just died yeah. of the rigors of the ancient world. Well, and prison is not the healthiest place to be. No, especially ancient prison. Not yeah. very sanitary for one thing. Exactly. So he could very well have just gotten sick and died in prison. I mean, cholera will do you in even if you're young and healthy. Exactly. So, let's talk about teachings. All right. This is going to take a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've got, what, about three pages of notes on this? You know, I didn't even count. Manny <laughs> believed that his religion, which he called the religion of light, was the completion or the uncorrupted interpretation of the teachings of Adam, Buddha, Zoroaster, and Jesus. So, we're off to a good start. So, despite being raised in the Persian Empire, Manny does not seem to have made use of any Iranian mythological traditions. 
There are some Iranian mythological elements in later copies of his works. Those appear to have been added later. Ultimately, Manny is dealing with the age-old question of, why is there evil? And the answer is, at least according to Manny, because good and evil are polar, dual opposites, equal in strength, and they've always existed, and evil is just a thing. If this doesn't sound like D&D yet, you have not been paying attention. <laughs> well, ultimately, D&D is rather dualist, isn't it? Yeah, and it, actually, it's dualist along two axes. It is. It is. I, I don't actually know what the term would be if it's bisected two different ways, but they're not, it's not quartered. I don't know. Let's, it's let's go with bisected dualism for the heck of it. We can let's make just up say terms on the dualism fly. And let's get back to talking about Manichaeism. Okay. Because there's a lot to cover. Oh my goodness. Um, but it's a strictly dual system, right? There is a very strict duality. The world before, remember we're talking about a Gnostic setup here. The world before everything is created is described as a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness that touch each other along one plane and are infinite in all other directions. Okay, so serious question here. Are we dealing with the Gnostic tradition of there being kind of like this ideal realm of pure thought that is also being referenced here, or is that particular Gnostic element discarded? Uh, there, it is a realm of pure thought. This is not the universe, right? This is not the material universe. But at the same time, it is a realm of good and a realm of evil, a realm of light and a realm of darkness, completely opposed to each other. Okay. Right? So, Gnostic, but a little bit different. This is not your... Garden variety Gnosticism, huh? Well, it, 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 again, it's purely dualist. This is not, there is evil, but it is an accident. It's good and evil exist independently and will always exist independently, at least until the end times. That's it. Both are equal in power and both have existed forever. Okay. Okay. Now... There is a very large and complicated arrangement of other deities emanating from God and basically Satan. God and Satan, again, kings of their respective kingdoms, equally powerful, opposite to each other. Here's the high-level overview of creation, okay? There are three different creations in the Manichaean tradition. Now, before then, we talked about this good and evil, completely separate realms, right? right. The world of light is ruled by the Father of Greatness, who has his five Shekinahs, which are divine attributes of light personified. Reason, mind, intelligence, thought, understanding. Now, again, you see the Gnostic tradition mixed in here, And right? a bit of Hinduism, too. It is, but it's that very thought-based idea of these are the attributes of the divine. Yep. Reason, mind, intelligence, thought, understanding. All intellectual. And then the world of darkness is ruled by, not White Wolf in this case, but the king of darkness, <laughs> who has his own five attributes personified, which are things like pestilence and other stuff. I, I don't remember all them exactly. Okay. There is the first creation, which starts when the kingdom of darkness becomes greedy for the kingdom of light and attacks it. It breaks this equilibrium. The okay. father of greatness calls to the mother of life, who sends her son, the original man, not... Adam, the original man, separate entity, to battle the attacking forces of darkness. Now, that original man is armed with five different shields of light, all of which are named and are themselves divinities. They are all reflections of these five different Shekinahs, which surround the king of the realm of light, okay, father of greatness. Is, what does Shekinah roughly translate to? Angel? Demigod? Uh, what is... It's a word. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> now, the original man loses these shields of light in the battle. The forces of darkness greedily consume them and as much light as they can. And when this original man comes to after the battle, he is trapped among the forces of darkness. This is okay because it's sort of a bait. This is sort of what was planned, right? You know, it's all part of my plan. And this leads to the second creation. Second creation, the father of greatness calls to the living spirit who calls his five sons. Again, five shows up a lot. Okay. He then sends a call to the original man, and in the process, that call itself becomes a deity. The answer, which itself becomes another deity, returns from the original man to the world of light. The mother of life, the living spirit, and the five sons of the living spirit then take the dead bodies of these evil beings which have swallowed the light and create the universe out of them. So we get that prototypical creation myth of here are bodies of heavenly things, and they have been turned into the material world. 
This actually kind of goes back a little bit to the violent creation stuff that we talked about with Derek White two episodes ago. Yes, it does. And it's because, remember, it's a very syncretic kind of faith. And so you have elements of a lot of those mythologies all mingled together. And speaking of mingling, remember that these evil beings have swallowed all of this light. Right. So the universe contains light and dark intermingled. All of creation is a mixture of good and evil. So unlike some forms of Gnosticism, Manichaeism does not suggest that creation is evil in the sense that it is, it is somehow inherently all awful. Rather, creation is an accident, right? We have that, or not an accident, but not really desired. Ideally, we would be back at this perfect balance of light and dark. In the realm of pure thought. Right. But creation is not all awful. Creation is a mixture of good and evil. And there are good and evil particles in everything. Good and evil atoms, if you will. Okay. okay? So... The universe that is created out of these bodies is ten heavens and eight earths, all with light and dark in various proportions. Okay, okay. and Some if you... Are whoa, hang on. That, lighter that's than others. major, major gaming stuff right there. Yes, it so, is. So, now we have the basis for an entire campaign setting here, where the player characters are on one of these arbitrary number of whatevers, the planet that they're on, and there's... Planes. Up, yeah, plane, planet, um... You know, We're really what, talking more about planes here, yeah. given the rest of the cosmogony. And there are these other ones out there that are basically the same place, but where good or evil is more dominant. Traveling around between all those alternate settings seems like that would make for a really fascinating campaign. Sure. And I think we've seen that before in... D&D, in, I don't know, sliders, you know, it's not exactly unknown, but... Yeah, I mean, even, like, alternate Earths, where you could say one of the ones, like, where, for instance, the Nazis won World War II would be one of the ones mm -hmm. where darkness was much more prevalent. Sure, and I think you could do it like that, but you could very easily have, like, a measurable, okay, how evil is this, how good is this? Yeah. Yeah, and of course, with the multiple heavens, it's kind of that same idea of, you know, you're progressing from a lower heaven to a higher heaven, you know, finding your way through. Uh, Dante almost has something like this, you know, where he's got his layers of heaven and hell. Yeah. That that same idea, you know, getting closer and closer to the, the real. And hey, if you're basing a campaign setting on this stuff, it's pretty syncretic already. You know, throwing Dante in is not really going to strain it. Uh, no, not very much. Now, um, we're talking about heavens and earth. Right. We're not talking about the sun, moon, and stars, because those are pure light recovered from this creative process, right? You know, just, oh, hey, we've, we've got some extra light here. Let's, let's pull that out and make the sun and the moon and the stars. As the moon waxes and wanes, what's happening is that the moon is filling with light that is being collected from the world, and it then passes that light, those light particles to the sun, which passes it down the Milky Way, and ultimately out of the universe, back to the world of light. This is basically a big filtration and extraction system. That is one of the most fascinating mythological explanations for the phases of the moon that I have ever heard. It's kind of neat, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Once yeah. again, very gameable. Yeah. And remember, the sun, moon, and stars, and Milky Way, are made of pure light, pure good. So that's going to come up more. Keep that in mind. Okay. So now we get to the third creation. You've got this world, this, this universe. Evil demons are trapped within it. They are evil, but they have consumed light. Uh, the mother of life, the original man, and the living spirit all beg the father of greatness for a third creation. And for this, the messenger and a host of attendants are created. There are 12 of these. They correspond to zodiac signs. Um... Planets, you know, are associated with them. Basically, everything mechanistic in the universe, in the sky, everything now works. But there's no life. Okay. A, a barren clockwork machine. The messenger and the demons fight and go through various, very nasty and obscene processes which create different living parts of the world. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to get into these, but it, it's very sexualized and kind of gross. Like, there's some really obscene stuff in there. Okay. Um, but ultimately, what ends up happening is these demons swallow enormous quantity of, of light that have kind of been extracted 
over and over. So you, you piled up and you more and more and more. And now, you know, the, the meal, if you will, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you get these enormous quantities of light, which the demons then swallow. They then copulate and produce Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve are created from both light and dark. They contain the light and dark within themselves. Okay. The Father of Greatness then sends the Radiant Jesus, one of three Jesuses, to awaken Adam and enlighten him as to the true source of the light that is trapped within his body. So Adam now understands. Adam is the first one to be enlightened. Okay. Adam and Eve, however, produce offspring. So rather than dying and letting that light go back to where it's supposed to go, they have children, and that keeps that light trapped within humanity. This is such a terrible sin that Eve earns herself eternal damnation for seducing Adam and keeping humanity going. How terrible. We're getting a little nihilistic here, but uh, all right, yeah. It, well, it, but it's not nihilistic because the whole idea is that everything will fix itself in the end. Everything will go back to this heaven, right? Because we're releasing these light particles. It's not nothing matters, which is nihilism. It's if only we could free all the light trapped in creation, everything would be better. True. I'm just, I, I'm at a loss for a better term for well, what I'm thinking here. Remember that even Paul, in his letter, in his early letters at least, was, you know, very fond of the idea of chastity being the preferred way to go. Ch uh, celibacy. Right. Really. Right. You know, it's better to be celibate, but if, if you can't be celibate, at least be chaste, be married, that sort of thing. Right. It, it's somewhat inherent in that time and in that that region of the world somehow this idea keeps coming up now paul's approaching it from a very different perspective he's he believes the perusia the you know the return of christ and the end of the world the new age a new heaven and new earth are imminent and so he's like there's no point right and later on as it becomes clear the perusia is much further off he backs off that but manny is saying if we keep having children this sin continues Right. Instead of there being no point, pro procreation actually fights against what you want to happen because it, it traps right. something that needs to be free in order for the universe to progress to its preferred state. Exactly. And that's the difference. Okay. Now, subsequent prophets, which include Zoroaster, Jesus, and Manny himself, are attempts by the world of light to reveal to mankind the truth about the world and the spiritual light within man. And Manny is kind of the final prophet who gets it right. Now, I have skipped over a lot of specifics. Okay. This is extremely complicated. Remember, Manny wrote six different works explaining this. Yes, and we're trying to give you the Cliff's Notes version in an hour or so, roughly. Yeah. So there's a lot here. That's just the cosmogony. Okay. So let's talk about organization, because this is actually pretty interesting, too. Spiritually, Manichaeism has three categories of people. There are the elect, who have taken Manichaean monastic-slash-ascetic vows, very much like Buddhist monks. Again, that Buddhist tradition filtering in. There are the hearers, who did not take those vows, but were still participants in the Manichaean church and still believed that Manichaeism was true. And then there are sinners, which is anyone else. Okay. Monastic and ascetic life is really important. The elect, who are also called the perfect, were naturally always a very small number, like one of every hundred Manichaeans. And there's a reason for that. They were called to a very hard life. They were always, 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 always itinerant monks. They were forbidden to permanently settle anywhere. They were forbidden to own any property. They were forbidden to eat meat or drink wine, to gratify any sexual desire, to be married, to engage in any occupation or trade or service, to practice magic, or to practice any other religion. Boy, that doesn't leave you with a whole lot of things to do with your life except for wander around and philosophize, basically. And we're not done. These duties were summed up by the three seals. Basically, the, the seal on the mouth, the seal on the hands, and the seal on the breast. The first, the mouth, forbade all evil words and evil foods. Okay, so obviously you don't want to speak evil, but also no evil foods. Meat awakens the, the evil spirit within, so you can't eat that. Only vegetables were allowed to the elect. Not fruit, vegetables. And consumption by the elect actually set those light particles within them free. Okay. So some of these vegetables were believed to contain more light particles than others. They were literally holier vegetables than others, and they were particularly recommended, though not required. Do we have any idea what they were? Uh, I 
don't certain things that were a little oilier or um, I think melons as well were were in there, but melon is fruit, so I may be wrong about well, that. Well, and it may have not been. Con- I mean, <laughs> biological science was not exactly advanced to the current level back when Manichaeism was a thing. So that's that's true. Now, they were not required to eat only these, but if they could, it was recommended because they were actively doing good by eating them. That's kind of a fascinating concept all on its own. It's pretty cool. Like, if you've got a not just a religious requirement, but a religious preference for certain things because you're like, no, no, this is actively holier. I love cucumbers, but broccoli is actually better for the world if I eat it. That's kind of weird. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's definitely... That'll definitely bring people from other traditions in your setting to be like, wait, why are these people buying up all of, you know, whatever plant that, you know, broccoli or celery or it's it's even better if it's something that's just considered kind of like um, like a filler or something or, you know, something that you wouldn't normally eat just on its own, like onions or something. Oh, yeah. Any, anything like that. Now, the second seal, the hands, forbade all evil actions such as killing slaying animals included, picking fruit, anything like that. Pretty obvious stuff. Okay, uh, wait, th- n- stop for a second. Picking fruit? How is that obvious? Well, remember, remember, fruit is not on the list. Vegetables only. You're picking fruit, you're you're killing something, right? Okay. Same thing. All right, so, so basically their version of fruit versus vegetable is something that can grow into another plant versus something that can't, or... Well, I, I'm not sure, but anything, probably anything sweet and enjoyable, honestly. Melons it's very are aesthetic. pretty sweet, though. I mean... You're you're trying to get me on details that I don't okay, know. Okay, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm, it's fascinating, but yeah. Yeah. So the third seal is the breast, forbidding all evil thoughts, whether against the faith or against purity. Now, this includes lust, procreation. Again, it keeps light trapped within humanity rather than freeing it. But all evil thoughts are forbidden. And this is the same idea of, you know, the heart being the source of thought. Okay. So, there you go. Now, the elect were also obliged to pray four times every day. Prayers were directed toward the sun, because again, remember, that's the the big ball of light, big ball of good, right? Yep. If the sun's not visible, you pray toward the moon. And if neither moon nor sun are visible, you pray toward the north. The whole prayer process involves ceremonial purification, 12 prostrations, and most prayers were praise of the multitude of personalities in the realm of light. Not much in the way of asking for things, begging forgiveness, mostly just praise. Uh, the North, by the way, is because it was believed that that's where the throne of the Father of Greatness was located. Okay. Now, astrological phenomena were naturally very intimately connected to prayer because you needed to know where these things were, right? Yeah. And if the planets and the zodiac are all these deities, well, you can track them. And you're praying to them, right? So there's a lot of astrology and astronomy happening here because they need to know where everything in the sky is because all of those sources of light are holy. The other part of it is fasting. All Manichaeans fasted on the first day of each week to honor the sun. The elect, who had a harder life, also fasted on the second day of each week to honor the moon. So if you're one of the elect, there are two days each week that you are fasting. In a row. It also bears mentioning. Plus, everyone fasts during two days after each new moon. Wow. Plus, once each year at the full moon, you fast. And at the beginning of the first quarter of the moon. And until sunset on the eighth day of each month. Okay, so if you were really unlucky and you were one of these elect, this stuff could stack up and you could conceivably fast for almost a week? Very possibly, yes. Wow. Yeah. Now, as you might imagine, not many people decided to become part of the elect. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a high standard. It's a very high standard, and it's worth pointing out that most Manichaean writings and most writings about Manichaeans, when they're talking about the elect, indicate that there was very little hypocrisy among the elect. There's a lot of people who really tried their very best to live up to this very high standard of asceticism. Wow. But the vast majority of Manichaeans were called the hearers, or catechumens. These are the laity, 99% of the church. Yep. They did not have many ritual requirements. Some of these fasts applied, many of the others did not. 
they only really needed to, to adhere to Manny's Ten Commandments, which forbade idolatry, mendacity, avarice, all killing, not just murder, but all killing, fornication, seduction, theft, magic, hypocrisy, which here means secretly being not a Manichaean, and religious indifference, which I think is an interesting one right there. You are forbidden to only care a little bit about your faith. You need to be committed. Okay, that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, they were also commanded to maintain the elect, much in the same way that Buddhists honor and maintain Buddhist monks, itinerant monks. Mm -hmm. It's the same kind of idea. You know, a, a monk may beg on the street. It's everybody's job to help support that monk. The elect were really treated as superior beings. They were holy. You know, they were greeted on bended knee. The elect collectively were believed to be the manifestation of the aeon of righteousness. The whole body of the elect altogether was a holy divinity. Okay, so um, you may or may not know this, and if you don't, it's fine. But was there any kind of additional formal ceremony for becoming one of these elect? Did you have to go through any kind of training or anything? Or did you just kind of decide there to... There were vows that you took. Okay. But there wasn't like um, an educational aspect to this or anything, huh? Well, remember, Manichaeism ultimately has some Gnostic roots. Right, which which makes me think there would be kind of a scholarly angle to it. To a certain degree. Um, one of the things we're, we're about to talk about here, Manichaeism is really a religion of the elites. Okay. Not always, but it's very popular among the elites where it goes, and other religions tend to be more popular in the sense of belonging to the rest of the populace. Okay. So there's a certain tendency for the people who are Manichaean to be educated, or at least have leisure time to read or be read to, that kind of thing. Remember, the Manichaean Church is not just a sect somewhere. It's a big organization. It has its own hierarchy. It has basically a, a seat of power and authority in Ctesiphon, in Babylonia. The hierarchy, by the way, you have the leader, who is Manny's successor, the Pope, or close enough. Okay. okay? They're seated in Ctesiphon. There are 12 apostles underneath them. 72 bishops underneath them, 360 presbyters, and then under them, the general body of the elect, and then you have the hearers, right? The people who believe in Manichaeism but have not taken those vows. And then outside of that, you have the sinners, everybody else. So there's a certain element of organization. This, this, is some, this is structured. There are established monasteries, that sort of thing. So there is an element of education in this, it is maybe not quite so formal as, you know, going to seminary. Okay. But there are definitely places to go learn about Manichaeism, and there's got to be a decision to take up these vows. Yeah, this was pretty hierarchical here. This is this is not the sort of thing where you kind of decide something. I would imagine there's some sort of permission or something involved. Well, no, you may decide, but it's just a question of, you know, where do I go to learn right. about it? Now, Manichaeism taught a threefold fate for souls. The perfect go straight to heaven. They go to the kingdom of light. They are greeted there and received there by Jesus. They get certain, you know, gifts and that sort of thing. Ultimately, their bodies are purified as they pass through the heavens, and the light particles within those bodies are formed into minor deities that surround the person of the original man. The hearers ultimately get to the same state, but they have to go through a lengthy purgatory first. Sinners wander lost. They don't have the requisite knowledge to get to where they're going. They're surrounded by demons, condemned by angels, and ultimately are thrown body and soul into hell when the world ends. Okay. So there you go. Seems fairly typical for a dualistic kind of deal. Now, we've talked a lot about what they believe. Let's talk about history. Manichaeism spread very quickly. It was never as popular as Christianity, even as popular as Zoroastrianism, at least not in the places where Zoroastrianism tended to be, but it was popular among the elites. Again, that idea that elites are the people who can take the time to read, they have education, that sort of thing. Very much like a lot of other Gnostic traditions. As a result, it tended to enjoy some political support because the elites yeah. tend to have political power. A lot, of, a lot of your adherents are people who are titled and have money. That's going to give you disproportionate influence. So, Manichaeism reaches Rome by 280 AD. Remember, uh, Manny died in 274 AD. So, six years after his death in Iraq, Manichaeism is in Rome. 
Yeesh. It flourish. It is flourishing in Egypt. It's basic. It's basically spreading at the speed of human foot traffic. Pretty much. There were apostles who went out uh, in the 250s. There was a uh, the apostle who brought it to Rome actually spent a lot of time in Egypt, and by 290 A.D. it's flourishing in Egypt. Manichaean monasteries were in Rome by at least 312 A.D. Uh, Hilary of Poitiers describes Manichaeism as a significant force in southern Gaul by 354 A.D. Wow. So it spreads west pretty quickly. How far did it get? Was Gaul as far as it uh, got, or...? Yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, Gaul's about the end of it. It doesn't really get to Spain too much. France is kind of the limit, but it definitely is strong there. Okay. It flourished in Persia, spread to northern India, western China, and Tibet. Recent archaeological discoveries have shown that Manichaeism was already known in China by 550 AD or so. The Uyghur ruler uh, Kagan Boku Tekin converted to Manichaeism in 763, and he made it the state religion. Uh, the Uyghur rule, uh, empire is kind of Central Asia, okay? okay. Um, not all that far from where Mongolia will be kind of more central, though, okay? Again, it's a steppe empire. Okay. It remains the state religion of this empire until its collapse in 840 AD, and Manichaeism was known in Chang'an, the capital of the Chinese Tang Dynasty. Now, in 296 AD, the Roman Emperor Diocletian decreed that all Manichaean leaders and all Manichaean scriptures should be burned. Wow, that was quick. 16 years after it shows up, they're under threat of, or sentence of death? Yes. Now, Diocletian ordered a lot of people murdered and burned, so... Take that yeah, I mean, he was, he was not exactly a sweet guy, but... No, but this caused a great many Manichaeans to die in Egypt and North Africa. At the request of Christians, Theodosius I stripped Manichaeans of their rights as Roman citizens in 381 AD, and in 382 he issued a decree of death for all Manichaean monks in the empire. This is also known as not Christianity's finest hour. No. Now, side note here. Augustine of Hippo, whom we know as St. Augustine, or at least we know him better as that, converted to Christianity from Manichaeism. But he converts in 387 AD, which is a bit before Theodosius declared Christianity the only legitimate religion in the Roman Empire in 391. Now, Augustine had been a hearer. He was not of the elect, but he was a hearer. And after his conversion, he became a major adversary of the Manichaeans. And I, I want to read off his indictment of this Gnostic dualism, okay? Because this is... A pretty valuable insight. This is from his confessions. It's pretty interesting. Okay. I still thought that it is not we who sin, but some other nature that sins within us. It flattered my pride to think that I incurred no guilt, and when I did wrong not to confess it. I preferred to excuse myself and blame this unknown thing, which was in me but was not part of me. The truth, of course, was that it was all my own self, and my own impiety had divided me against myself. My sin was all the more incurable, because I did not think myself a sinner. And so this is somebody who has been an adherent of this, you know, this idea of Gnostic dualism, and is now approaching it again from a, a Christian perspective. That's fairly deep, actually. It is. Now, uh, Augustine would actually spend much of the rest of his life arguing against Manichaeism. This was kind of the big opponent of Christianity where he was and in that time. And so, you know, he has a lot of debates with Manichaeans. Really, that's the focus of a lot of his work. And some scholars think that his time as a Manichaean shaped his theology even after he'd given it up. Okay. And perhaps not unexpectedly. You spend 10 years believing something, it's going to have some effect on you. Yeah, definitely. By the end of the 400s, Manichaeism had largely disappeared from Western Europe. By 600 AD, it was largely gone from the Byzantine Empire. So everywhere that Rome had been, it's largely gone. But it persists sporadically in other parts. Mesopotamia, Africa, France, Northern Italy, and the Balkans, it persists for a thousand years. It just hangs around in these little communities, these little traditions, and occasionally crops back up. These are kind of remote areas in the ancient world, right? I mean, these are... They are. You don't hear a lot of ancient Balkan history in, you know, the classic era. 
Right. Now, Mesopotamia is not, yeah. but it's, you know, where it originated. It had some backing in the Persian Empire, so it tends to just exist for longer. There. They're certainly not being hunted down like they are in Rome. Uh, not, or, if, or if they not are, not with nearly the efficiency that Romans are known for hunting people down. Right. Now, in China, some Manichaeans participated in peasant movements and revolts after the Tang Dynasty. In the Song and Wan dynasties, and I'm, I'm going to mispronounce this because I can't pronounce English transliterations of Chinese words for the life of me. But in these dynasties, rebel leaders often used Manichaeism to motivate their followers, and so the remnants of Manichaeism contributed to these Chinese rebel sects, like the Red Turbans, for centuries thereafter. All of these revolutionary groups in China have this Manichaean aspect to them. All Chinese governments eventually ended up suppressing Manichaeism because it's this religion of peasant revolts. Well, and it's also kind of a, I mean, it's its a very Western religion in a lot of ways, and that probably didn't sit real well with their own spirituality either. Yeah, to a certain degree. Now, it's worth pointing out that the Ming Dynasty issued an official ban on Manichaeism in 1370 AD, and that shows how long Manichaeism lingered in that part of the world. Yeah, and I'm, I'm guessing that Everybody who was practicing it, it didn't just suddenly give it up in 1370 either, so it probably stuck right. around for a while beyond that. Exactly. Now, the Arab Islamic world was a bit more hostile to Manichaeism, although not in the first century. In the first century, it was actually very popular among the elites. There were scholars writing defenses of Manichaeism, but under the Abbasids, eventually they were persecuted, and that persecution lasted until the 780s. Most of Manichaeans fled elsewhere. It still crops up occasionally. Catharism seems to have borrowed a bit from Manichaeism. Um, it borrowed the hierarchy of the church, for example. And in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church ends up fighting a lot of Gnostic sects that crop up and other what they call Neo-Manichaean movements. Uh, these were like the Paletians of Armenia, the Bogomils of Bulgaria, that sort of thing. But those really didn't use any Manichaean mythology. They didn't use any terminology. Really, this was the church saying, these are dualist Gnostic sects. We fought one of those a long time ago, and our church fathers fought it. And so we kind of know what to call it. Manichaeism. We don't care if it's technically accurate. That's what we're calling this, it. This is the term that we have for this now, huh? When all you have is a rhetorical hammer, everything looks like a rhetorical nail. And it gets pounded in a not-so-rhetorical way out of existence as quickly as possible. Well, and in a rhetorical way as well, Yeah, to be sure. Because Manichaeism was naturally syncretic, what happened as Manichaeism spreads is local deities and local forms were adapted into those scriptures. Things get renamed, things get reused, where Zoroastrianism is popular, for example, the Yazadas, those names get used in place of the figures in Manny's work. Um, Chinese names for various Buddhist bodhisattvas get used in place of a lot of figures, that sort of thing. So, that's Manichaeism. Yes. Roughly. <laughs> that's a small part, a high-level overview of Manichaeism. It's pretty complicated. Yeah, I was going to say, this is probably going to be the most complicated heretical sect we deal with, at least for a while. No, I think it actually is. It definitely is. Because remember, this is a religion that ended up competing with Christianity pretty heavily. It was established for a while, had a lot of tradition built up. Uh, and interestingly, all of this cosmogony comes out of Manny's writings. One guy writes all of this down and creates it. Well, and I mean, he essentially took, what, about four or five different religions and At bolted least. them together? Yeah, like I said, it's it's very syncretic. And then edited stuff to make it consistent. So that's a lot of work, and that's a huge amount of complexity. It's very complicated like a lot of Gnostic traditions are, because it's a knowledge religion. If you know all the, the secrets, you know how to get to heaven. Now, if you take the ascetic route and become one of the elect, you go straight there. Otherwise, you, you have this long journey ahead of you after death, but ultimately you'll get there. Okay, so I know we've, we've peppered some gaming stuff in as we've been going, like we said we were yep. going to do. I think we might be able to get a little more in here before we wrap this one up. I mean, there's yeah. I now agree. that we've got a more complete picture, I think there's some additional possibilities that we can kind of call out here. So Agreed. Obviously, one of them is the whole syncreticism thing. Um, yes, and I think it'd be interesting if you have 
let's assume it's a D and D game, right? You yeah. Know, you got your paladin of uh, give me a D and D deity. Uh, Pelor. Pelor, right? Paladin of Pelor. He's like, I, I, I read the word of Pelor. I know all about Pelor. I'm totally up on Pelor. And he goes somewhere, and they're like, Oh, Pelor. Yeah, we know Pelor. Uh, he's the third arm of Hecate. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, no, we, we totally worship him. We're good. We don't need you. We're good. Do you want to worship in our temple? Uh, no. You know? <laughs> or or maybe... Or uh, maybe... Yes, you know? I guess. Sure. I mean, it's dedicated to Paylor. How bad could it be? Yeah. And so you get this, but you're wrong. But we don't think we're wrong, but you're wrong. Uh, ah. Well, and it's, it's interesting. I actually kind of inadvertently did this in one of my D&D settings. There was a formal alliance between, I want to say, two lawful good deities, a neutral good one, a chaotic good one, and a lawful neutral one that all kind of function together and work together very closely. Mm -hmm. Where if you, you asked the the priests of one of them, they would say, oh yeah, I'm dedicated to so-and-so. But they all would communicate with each other and share resources and stuff so yeah i'll pass your prayers up the chain and it'll get where it's going yeah and the way i explained it in the setting was that all of the deities were related to each other which goes back to the whole syncretism thing well and the whole polytheistic you know here's a god and all of his children and you know grandchildren and cousins and all that sort yeah. of thing, right that paternal very greek view of yeah creation. absolutely i mean like a lot of D D settings it was highly polytheistic yeah, I, I think that's good. I think having a figure who tries to unify multiple religions into a single faith could be interesting because that's naturally a point of conflict. It's worth mentioning that that can be really interesting if that figure is walking around the setting at the same time the PCs are, or if that figure walked around the setting some arbitrary length of time before they were and they find stuff out about it later, or that's part of the history of the way the re religion works in the setting, any of those options works for setting yeah. texture, for adventure ideas, for MacGuffins. Any of it. Yeah. Likewise, I th really like the idea of having one religion that the elites in a society follow and one religion that everyone else follows, because that creates a lot of social tension. Why do the elites worship this? Like, is it all of them? Is it people who tend to lean a certain way? What's the difference? What does this do for society? What does it? What problems does it cause? Well, and it works especially and, well because you've got some of that mystery cult stuff in there, right? Right. And if I worship this god of the elites, does that mean I'm pretentious? Does it mean I'm trying to climb up in the world? Does it mean my parents were servants in one of these elites' households? What does it mean? Yeah, does it mean I'm a dangerous heretic and the elites will come after me? Because, you know, how dare I worship this god that is not for me? When you start adding that social fracture in, I think it, it gets really interesting. Some really obvious ones, religious persecution, religious syncretism we've talked about. Um, missionaries, this is not in any way, shape, or form unique to Manichaeism, but I think missionaries, escorting missionaries, meeting missionaries, the whole missionary idea is great in any game. People who are traveling and are far away and have this mission that they're very devout about, Something else that um, just kind of the rapid spread of uh, Manichaeism really brings up is if you've got missionaries whose whole purpose is instead of making really devout, committed followers of their religion like Paul seemed to want to do, their purpose is to just cover as much territory as possible and spread this out and trust people to kind of take care of the details on their own, that's going to look radically different. Those people are, for one thing, are going to pack a whole heck of a lot lighter. You know, yeah. there's there's going to be a lot less scholarly text and stuff because they got to move. You can do a lot with this idea of the elect. If there's in your setting a group of itinerant monks who have that same ascetic ideal, but they can go anywhere and they're pretty much worshipped by the populace, it might be very tempting for players to try and pretend to be those or someone else to try and slip spies and assassins in as them when you have this class of people who everybody kind of worships and doesn't question as long as they aren't eating meat and you know drinking wine and carousing and that sort of thing that's a it's a good disguise opportunity there's a lot you can play around with there. well and also you know you're working with a fictional setting of some kind there's nothing to say that their tenets aren't totally different i mean 
you know, there, there might be something in their religion that prevents them from doing some things and they come off as ascetic, but, you know, they see no moral conflict at all of serving as spies or even assassins. You know, it's fantasy religions yeah. can be interesting or weird or scary that way. And real ones, too. The history of feudal Japan is full of warrior monks. Yeah. To the point where many of them held territory like clans and fended off attackers because they were terrifying. Yeah. Um, I think religious entanglement with rebellion also offers a lot of opportunities. This somewhat gets back to the class thing, but you can always have somebody who's perverting teachings in order to lead a rebellion or importing teachings from elsewhere in order to encourage rebellion. You know what I think would be really interesting with this is just hearing you say that. If you could take this kind of religious political entanglement and stuff and put it in a setting that's basically going through the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Because those things didn't happen anywhere near the same time in the real world, right? But there's a lot of the same kind of compelling impulses behind both of them. Particularly when you look like France, where they're killing aristocrats and stuff. It's like, well... If there's also a religious aspect to that, all of a sudden it gets really, the stakes get really high and it gets really messy. And that's very yeah. gameable. I mean, you probably have to be careful it doesn't get too grim for your taste, but there's a lot of yeah. fuel there. Well, remember, that's kind of what the Boxer Rebellion was. Yeah, In true. China, right? This anti-imperialist uprising in 1899-1901, in an era of cannon and ironclads, rifles you you have that same kind of thing in an industrialized setting support the government exterminate the foreigners yep a few other things you can play with um i, I talked about the uh, this uyghur ruler kagenboku tekin who converted to manichaeism 763 ad he did that supposedly after spending three days talking with these manichaean clerics who came to him and converted him. He had these three days of debate and discussion. And then it's like, all right, there we go. I'm converting and everyone else is converting too. Um, that's a great challenge to put up in front of your players. You have three days, convince me of X, to convert, to not go to war, to go to war, something like yeah, that. You know, set a time limit. Financially back your cause to whatever. Yeah. Set a time limit and say, you have three days. Make it happen. It's it's a great scene. It raises the tension, ratchets it up really nicely. Play around with that. I think you can get a lot. And I, I think just even just setup. the idea that you have somebody that's that willing to be convinced, but isn't inherently, makes for a very interesting setting element. They're going to remember that character, even if they don't convince them. And they're like, wow, yeah. that's the guy that took three whole days to sit down and hear us out. You know, that's that says things about that person's character and their personality that somebody who just sends you away or somebody who backs you to get you out of his hair. Those are very different types of personality. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, last thing I want to recommend is playing around with this neo-Manichaean idea. If you've got like a new religion cropping up and all of a sudden someone's like, no, it's it's the resurgence of this thing we hated a thousand years ago. We need to raise armies and stamp it out. Well, now we've got an interesting situation because maybe it's not. Maybe it's something completely different. Maybe it's totally the same thing. Maybe it's a big misunderstanding. Maybe it's not. It's a scenario you can kind of play around with and subvert in a couple of different ways. But personally, I like the idea that, hey, here's this new religion or uh, a different take on the same religion, that sort of thing. And the parent religion says, whoa, no, we are not having this again. And your protests of, but it's not the same thing, kind of go unheard. And now all of a sudden the army's bearing down. What do you do? Yeah. Heck, maybe even maybe even not the army, you know, and it, it could be just as stressful if you have a whole bunch of like religious scholars, which may or may not have magic that are coming in to like reeducate everybody or something. You know, it might not even be through force of arms. It could just be. Yeah. Oh, boy. What are we going to do? There's all of these scholars and they're not happy. This is not going to be comfortable for anybody. Yeah. Maybe you stop your current game and break out Montsegur 1244. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, we'll talk. We'll be talking about Montsegur 1244, by the way, when we do discuss Catharism. Uh, but suffice to say, it's a game where you're under siege because you're Cathars and someone has to turn traitor and someone has to be martyred. And everyone else can maybe live or die, kind of depending. But someone has to fill 
like there are fates that you have to fill in. It's kind of fiasco-y in some ways. It's pretty interesting. Huh. I'd never even heard of yeah. it until you mentioned it just now. Yeah, it's a it's an after con game that Michael Matthews brings up a lot. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. All right, I think that's going to do it for Manichaeism. If I got anything wrong, please put it in comments on the episode at sggcast.org. I will be linking a few things in the show notes. Most of this, honestly, is kind of a distillation of, you know, various different internet sources. I don't have books on this, much as I wish I did. Well, you're not Ken Height yet. Ah, uh, not yet. I'm trying. If I got anything horribly wrong, let me know. Otherwise, look forward to our next episode. Uh, after that, I think we are, or maybe the next one, we're going to be doing our New Year's resolution episode. Actually, uh, I think so that be might be our very next episode. I think it is. Unfortunately, there's no time to get your own New Year's resolutions in, but we'll be talking about that. That's a, a yearly tradition that we do. And I think that's going to do it. As always, rate and review us on iTunes, share us around, and We'll catch you next time, folks. Take it easy. Have a good one. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.